Hi, I'm Reagan, and thanks for listening to my dad's podcast, Lasting Learning. Hi, this is Dave Schmidow, the host of the Lasting Learning Podcast. On this show, we talk to real people with real stories. We focus on the focus and discuss what matters most. Let's go. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Lasting Learning. This week is a super cool week for me because I have a guest on today who I'm going to um, really get to know on a new level today. I've got a guy who I've been tracking for a little bit of time now on social media, love his, his tweets, love what he stands for, love what he writes, love what he speaks about, and uh, I, I love his message. And today, I'm going to get to know him in a real way, just like you are. I am super jealous that he is living in California where it is pushing 80 degrees. And as I'm recording this, it's about 15 degrees here in Michigan. But I'm not going to hold that against him. Today, we've got Michael Horton joining us. Mike, thanks for being here. All right. Thanks, Dave. Absolutely. So, yes, I'm, I, I'm Mike Horton, and I'm uh, currently – a, a vice principal at a STEM charter school here in Southern California. And we are, we were ranked by U S news and world reports as the number 77 high school in the nation. And um, we're, we're in a very diverse, high unemployment, high poverty area. So we consider that um, a source of pride for us that we can achieve such success with a group of kids that some people feel you can't be successful with. Um, so we're, we're very proud of that. And before this, I was at two county offices as a science coordinator. And at county offices, when you're a science coordinator, much of your job is about coaching principals through turning around persistently underperforming schools. So I did a lot of that work. And before that, I was a, a science teacher for 12 years, chemistry and physics and computer repair and career foundations and tons of nerdy stuff. So I got to ask, because uh, every state does things a little bit differently. Talk to us a little bit about charters in California. Uh, in some places, uh, charter schools have a stigma attached to them. In other places, they're seen as elite institutions. In other places, they're kind of just a, a regular public school that's available mm -hmm. a choice. How does it work in California? So in, in California, there's a little bit of everything that you just described there. But I think my particular charter school, the Western Center Academy, is a great compromise. All of the bad things that you hear about charter schools, the teachers aren't credentialed, they're not union, they don't get tenured, they're not paid well. None of those are true about my school. We're a dependent charter school. So we belong to the Hemet Unified School District. Our teachers belong to the same union. They're paid on the same salary scale. They're credentialed just like everyone else. We just get freedom how we spend our money and the curriculum that we teach. So we focus on the STEM subjects. And instead of a football team, we have six robotics teams, um, which the, the first robotics organization calls the sport that everyone can go pro in. 
um, that right behind you on the computer screen, I can see uh, four of our teams are moving on to the regional championships and they're in there scrimmaging each other in the, in the room behind you. Um, so we, we really, we focus on STEM competitions and STEM after school activities and STEM clubs and STEM classes and STEM electives. And it, it's really, really worked out for us. And like any great school, our school is filled with great teachers. And that's, I can imagine a great school that's filled with great teachers and not a great administrator, but I cannot imagine a great school that has a great administrator and not great teachers. So definitely, I think the, the secret to success of my school and any great school is we're filled with great teachers. It sounds to me, as you describe it, it sounds like it's the perfect model for a school. And I'm wondering why don't other schools just adopt your, your philosophy. It's, you still have the same standards, you've got the same expectations, the same funding source, you're just able to, to designate that your funds go towards engagement, engagement and student learning outcomes. Is that absolutely accurate? Or? There's, there's nothing that we do that other people couldn't replicate. We are, we are on the site of a, a museum that's in a nature reserve. So it's a beautiful campus. And um, the museum make, has a simulated archaeological dig site for us where our students get to um, grid and, and dig and sift and photograph and record um, a simulation that the museum buries underground. But before we had that, we used cement mixing tubs and we buried our own archaeology simulations underground and had the kids do the same thing. Um, there's not a sled desk on our entire campus. All of our classrooms are desks arranged with chairs prepared for kids to do projects and collaborate electronically through the Google Suite, um, making posters, making animations, writing computer programs. Any school can do that. Um, so we're, we're highly academic. Uh, our, our behavior is, is really in check. Our kids are serious about their academics, but they didn't come to us that way. Uh, I think a lot of people look at a school like mine and they say they're only successful because they recruit great kids and they just keep them great. Um, but Anybody who visits our school sees, wow, there's some amazing things going on there, and anybody could replicate those amazing things. Um, I, I wish more people would come and visit our school. We, we welcome visitors, and we have a fairly steady flow of visitors, but I, I would love if we had a waiting list of people that wanted to come and visit our campus. That's awesome. Now, how did you end up there? Um, so when I was... I. I was a science teacher and my dream was to be the science coordinator at a county office. I wanted to train science teachers and share my ideas for science experiments and, and oversee the, the science fair, which I believe it was the greatest thing that ever happened to my daughter. Um, and so I was about 32 years old and I found myself in my dream job. But I went straight from the classroom to the county where most people go classroom assistant principal, principal, district office, county office, I jumped straight to the county office. And then I got promoted a couple of times and then I hit a ceiling. I could not go any higher unless I had site administration experience. So I knew that I had to, to be a site administrator to go be a director. Um, and this school is near my home. My daughter had applied. There's such a demand for this school that we have 128 spots in sixth grade and we'll get 
275 applications. Wow. So my daughter did not get in in sixth grade. She did not get in in seventh grade. And so there were a lot of perks of having this as my experience to get site administration experience um, close to home. My daughter would get into the school. It's a spectacular school. And after I was science coordinator, I became avid administrator. So I spent my time um, learning how to get underrepresented kids into college. So I think that preparation, the science, and the preparing kids, underrepresented kids for college was the perfect mix to prepare me for a STEM school where we get underrepresented kids into elite colleges. And we have kids at Stanford and MIT and all of the, the UCs and the Cal States. So that preparation with this, the STEM and the science teaching and the AVID really prepared me perfectly for this. So this is the only site administrative application that I ever put in, and it's just been perfect. We were, we were middle school when I started here, and they hired me to help um, design the high school. So now we cover sixth through 12th grade, and I was brought in to help design the high school. And so it's been such an amazing feeling to see something that I helped design come to fruition and kids graduating and going off to great colleges. Oh, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> sounds, sounds like an amazing ride. But, you know, I want to go back to your story a little bit. You said that very early on, you knew um, that, that you wanted to go work at, uh, as a director and help, uh, help other teachers. So I'm assuming then that means that since you were a kid, you knew that you had this leadership potential in you. You've just always been a leader and you knew that's what you were going to do with your career. Is that correct? Or am I way off base? Absolutely the opposite of that. Um, I, I have really bad social anxiety. Um, I'm a, I have a degree in physics with all the stereotypes that go along with the degree in physics. And when I started leadership, I, I thought that people could be convinced to change with data and logic and I could come into a school and show them data proving how terrible they are and a light would come on and they say, I've seen the light, I want to change. And I learned very quickly that that doesn't work and what does work is relationships. And so I was coaching principals, never having been a principal myself. So I went out and read every leadership book out there. I've probably read 150 leadership books. Um, because one of my biggest fears is, is looking stupid. And my second biggest fear is being an inconvenience to someone. So I go in to coach a principal and I don't know what I'm talking about. And I would be an inconvenience who looks stupid. And so I went above and beyond reading every leadership book I could find and studying the amazing leaders that I had around me. In I was at the Orange County Department of Education first, the OC. So very very high achieving, affluent county, and then Riverside County, which is a, a very diverse, high poverty county. I saw both ends of the spectrum and all of the leaders. I visited hundreds of schools, so I got to see hundreds of, of leaders from ineffective to absolutely amazing and award-winning, and I learned so much from them about being, being a leader. And I think it, it taught me in the end that a person can learn to be a leader. I had no leadership experience or leadership skills, no understanding of what it takes to be a leader until I jumped into a leadership position and realized that I didn't know what I was doing. And so I spent, luckily my, my first, my boss at the first county office, her advice to me was don't do anything your first year, 
just go out and talk to people, ask good questions and listen. And at first I thought, that's terrible advice. I'm gonna be known as the guy that doesn't do anything. And then I tried it and I realized what genius advice it was. I, I learned so much that first year. I didn't actually do nothing, uh, but I did a lot of listening and asking questions and, and I learned a ton about how to be a good leader. I've got to ask, how did you realize that your logic and um, statistics approach wasn't going to be the thing that won people over? Um, <laughs> I, and I asked that because I'm a, I'm a guy who, when I first entered into administration, I had that same struggle. <laughs> and I still combat uh, that, that a little bit and think that if I just have enough answers, I'll be able to convince enough people. But the more answers you have, the fewer people that actually want to hear your answers. So how did you make that evolution? How did, or was it a slap across the face that happened? Oh, it was absolutely a slap across the face the first few times I tried it. Um, and then Anthony Muhammad's book um, really helped me in identifying that I am a type two fundamentalist, that if you want me to change, you need to describe to me why I need to change and show me data that this thing that I'm changing to is better than what I'm currently um, doing. But it helped me understand that not everybody um, is like me and that um, the people that I was surrounded with, uh, I share a lot of these, these stories of my evolution in my book, um, but there are so many great people at the Riverside County office that helped me learn about relationships and, and how to use those relationships to, to help people overcome their ideas about what's making students unsuccessful and what their contribution to that is. Um, there, was, there was one coordinator who constantly told me that you have to join people in their delusion and slowly walk them out of it. And I didn't understand it. And he kept talking about this movie, What About Bob? And, and how there was a, a patient who was afraid to leave the house. And, um, his doctor joined him in his house and then slowly took a step out, then two steps out and three steps out. And then finally, he worked with me at a school where there was a math department that was 3% proficient. And this was an IB school. So their IB students were proficient in math and nobody else was proficient. And so I went in with data and I presented to their math department said, look, you guys are mathematicians, 3%. That, that's like a hundred kids in your entire school who are proficient and 1900 who are not, something's wrong. And they went, I'll make up the name of a school, I'll say Jones High School. And they, they just said, yep, that's Jones High School kids. And I was like, what? I just presented you data. And then they had all of these excuses and reasons for why the kids were unsuccessful. And when presented with data, none of them made sense, but they would not let go. And one of the excuses that they used was, well, it's because we try to teach them algebra in one year. Back when we did it in two years, it was so much more successful, but the district won't let us do that anymore. So I went back and I collected the data from the last 15 years and said, look, you guys have been between two and three and a half percent since data has been collected. If there was a time where you did two years and there was success, um, it must have been more than 15 years ago. And they said, no, it was six years ago. Well, six years ago, you had two and a half percent proficiency. So that was not successful. And they argued back and argued back and the data just didn't work. So that join them in their delusion, this colleague of mine said, okay, just, I know this is gonna hurt, but just 
go with them, pretend like you also think that the students are the problem and then say, okay, the students are the problem. So what are we going to do about it? So joining them in the delusion that it's not their, their issue to deal with, it's the students issues to deal with. And, and I, I couldn't do it because I don't believe that it's true, but I joined them in their delusion. I built relationships with them. And then I slowly said, well, what if we tried this? How, how about if we tried that? How about if instead of one day a week of voluntary after-school tutoring for 1,900 kids. How about if we try to work something in the school day that's mandatory? And so we slowly started walking them out. And I never said, see, you guys were wrong. It wasn't the kid's fault. Um, but eventually, all of those excuses started breaking down. And they started realizing that if the adults at this school change what we're doing, we can change the success rate of our students. That's it, a powerful story. And I, I love how even when you were being coached on how to lead to that scenario, they led you in your delusion. <laughs> Nobody came at you with a bunch of stats and talked about the number of teachers that weren't listening to you. They just walked with you and said, how about, why don't you try? And they modeled for you the exact same thing. Now, Absolutely. years later, are you still at, at the place where you battle with, with that? Uh, is it is it more innate in you to just want to throw logic and reason at people, or is it more natural for you now to to walk beside people? It, it's a lot more natural for me. I still really appreciate and enjoy. And before I try to convince something that some someone that something is better, I have to go out and convince myself first. So I still go out and read the research and read the books and study the data and chat with people on Twitter to convince myself but then I don't use those techniques to convince other people. Um, I really believe in the emotional bank account. Um, you just, you are good to people and you do favors for people. And when it comes time to ask them for something, they're much more willing to do it. And, you know, I think if I met some stranger on the street and said, hey, I need um, $20 to buy lunch, can I have it? They would say, no way. But if I asked my wife for $20 for lunch, she'd say, oh, of course. Uh, and it, it's that relationship that makes the difference. And when people think that you care about them and you have a, a culture of trust with them, then it, it's a lot easier to discuss difficult topics with them and, and convince them that maybe there's a better way. Yeah, you're speaking a lot of truth there. And one of the things that you just said is, you know, you do the research and you read the books and you make sure that you, you're armed with everything that you need to be armed with. And you've actually now taking that a step further and you've written your own book to, to try to arm others. Can you talk us through that process? At what point did you realize, wow, I've got something now I should share with others. And then just talk through the, the process of actually writing the book and then we'll dive into the book a little bit after that. Sure. I think some of it is my personality. So, some people get an adrenaline rush from jumping out of airplanes. I get an adrenaline rush from learning something new. And when I learn something new, especially when it crushes a misconception that I had, I want to share it with the world. So as I was reading all of these leadership books, I started blogging about it because a lot of the leadership books were business leadership books, like Good to Great, Outliers. And so I started blogging about how school leaders can use business leadership books to improve their leadership. Um, I thought that there were amazing business leadership books out there that with a few simple tweaks could be converted to school leadership. And so I started blogging about it and eventually um, I added my experiences, um, 
turning around multiple schools and coaching principals and all of the lessons that I learned uh, from those amazing leaders into the story of a transformational leader. So the, the book is actually a fable because out of the hundreds of leadership books that I've read, in my top 10, half of them are, pro are fables. Uh, <coughs> five dysfunctions of a team and tw 12 pillars and who moved my cheese and all of those. Those are my top books and they're all written as fables. So um, I decided I would write my leadership book as a fable, but the fable is all based on true event stories. Um, almost everything in the fable is a true event. They just happened at a hundred different schools and I've weaved them all into the story of one person at one school. Um, and then at the end, um, after the story is over, then I go back and, and tell some of the true stories because some of them are nearly unbelievable. And so I go back and say, and the 3% math story, that was a true story. I did not make that up. And this story and that story, they were true stories. And there's some very positive stories and some depressing stories. Um, I, I, I meant to mention this earlier, but <coughs> one of the things that really launched me into leadership was an experience when I was a teacher. Um, I was a teacher at a 5% a persistently underperforming school. So identified by the federal government as one of the bottom 5% schools in the country. I spent 10 years there. And I had a lot of success. I've, I've written two books about the science experiments that I did with these students that, that literally multiplied their proficiency 600% in three years. And there was not as much of that success going around the campus. So there was one faculty meeting we were having and it was getting really negative and student blaming and zip code expectations. And I had enough of it. I stood up and made a passionate speech about these are our kids and they have the best parents they're gonna have and they come from the best situation they're gonna have and they have the best reading skills they're gonna have. And we can't change their middle school education. We are the only ones who can change their lives. So let's make this a school that people wanna make movies about. And it was silent. I didn't know if it was good silence or bad silence. And then somebody raised their hand and I go, yes, a comment. And the person said, I don't want any cameras in my classroom. And it was at that moment, I thought, I, I need to get into leadership. I think I have a lot to teach. And um, I, I can share that with others in a, a more effective manner <clears throat> from a leadership position. And it just so happened that county office science coordinator was at that meeting. And she also suggested that I get into leadership and started mentoring me get this degree, take this test, read these books, go to this conference to prepare me to become a science coordinator. And she would introduce me, hey, this is Mike, he wants my job. <laughs> uh, so I ended up getting the science coordinator position in another county. <coughs> there was a two and a half hour commute each way. And then she got promoted and I did come and take her job. Not take it from her, <laughs> but take it after she got promoted. Uh, that's, a, that's a great story. First of all, I wanna, compliment you on uh, the idea of writing the book as a fable. Um, you know, I, I've said before, some of the greatest leaders in the history of the world um, taught people through parables and fables. So if it worked for them and we're still, we still remember their stories thousands of years later, it's going to work for you too. We remember, the, we remember stories well after we remember 
um, quotes and anecdotes from individuals. I mean, that's why we read picture books to our kids because that's how we want the moral messages to get through to them as opposed to us just standing over them, wagging our finger at them. So it works for kids, it works for adults, it works for all of us. So commend you on that. That's, that's amazing. And you know, I, I'm reminded as you were just talking, just a couple of weeks ago, I had Allison Apsey on. Um, Allison Apsey, she's an amazing leader here in the state of Michigan. Um, she's written countless books and she talks about serendipitous moments. And I'm thinking about your story. And if you go back to that time when you're teaching in the, in the school that I'm sure it was difficult. I'm sure it was so hard, not only having to, to work every day to change destinies, but to also try to convince and change the mindsets of the community and your peers across the hall. And I, I'm sure at times you felt like you were just banging your head against the wall. But it was that moment and it was that experience that we look back on now and say, wow, it was serendipitous. If you hadn't gotten to that level of frustration where you stood up and spoke up, your career would have taken a completely different trajectory. It was that moment of frustration that opened the door for the next opportunity, the next opportunity, the next opportunity. And now you're sharing that story with so many others, all because of that moment that in the moment, I'm sure you were just oh, frustrated beyond belief. And it's crazy looking back on it now. Do you agree? It was, it was, it was disappointing and depressing. And I had, I just applied for an Einstein fellowship and, I made it to the final, final, finals and didn't quite make it. So I was disappointed in that. And it, it just, everything came together. And I think that moment got me the job at Orange County Department of Education, which got me the job at Riverside County Office of Education, which prepared me for this job where I feel like I'm not in a big hurry to get back and be a director anymore. I, I'm loving it here. It was a spectacular experience for my daughter and we do amazing things for kids. And so I'm not in a big hurry anymore. I, I really enjoy it here. And um, I really, I connect with kids. We had, I told you before we started, I'm a storyteller. <laughs> uh, we had a, a professor from USC who used to come out and test his education apps on our students. And early when I first started here, maybe just under a year here, I was going out and picking up really good kids to come and try his apps. And half of the kids were crying when I came to pick them up and they thought they were in trouble. And I thought, I've got to do something about this. I need, I've built positive relationships with the teachers. I need to build positive relationships with the kids too. So I started running high interest after school clubs. I, I do um, I mental robotics teams that I do engineering clubs and 3D printing and CAD and laser cutting and Arduino programming. And I'm getting ready to start a cosplay club. Um, I've done electronics and soldering and leadership development. And I get to know the kids. So when I come to pick them up, they don't automatically think, oh, the vice principal's picking me up. I'm in trouble. And now, you know, I, I know most of the kids. We have about 700 kids at our school now that we've expanded into high school. So back when it was just a middle school, I could say that I knew almost everybody's name. And it's a smaller percentage now, but I've connected with so many more kids and I built those relationships with them so that instead of punishing them when they get in trouble, I have their trust in their relationship so I can have deep conversations with them about the root cause of the behavior and what's going on at home because they've told me stories about their families and I know their struggles in class and what classes they're good at and not good at. And it, it's changed my whole job building those relationships with those students. And they're clubs that I'm passionate about and then that passion is contagious. And we have a student who, when he finishes his LDS mission, he's headed off to MIT, 
who started out in my electronics and soldering club, and he ended up being a semi-famous YouTuber taking apart electronics that he found on the side of the road and building new devices out of them, usually that sparked or flamed or electrocuted or started fires or exploded. But he had tens of thousands of YouTube followers and was making hundreds of dollars a month. And I, I think I had something to do with igniting his passion for, uh, for electronics and invention. And, and now he's headed to MIT. It's pretty cool. You, you, in that answer, you kind of answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just in case there's something else. I was going to ask, you know, it seems like you've, you've, you've arrived and you've made it. You're, it seems like every single bucket of yours is being filled right now. But I also hear this part of you that's, there's always something more. There's always something next. And I was just going to ask you, what, what, what is the next passion project you have? You've, you've written the books, you um, have, developed into this, this leadership mindset that's powerful. You have expanded a school. Maybe, maybe your passions are being filled right now with all the after-school clubs and you're acting like a 15-year-old a yourself and you get to just play with the students all the all time and maybe that's what you're looking for. I don't know. Well, how, how are you filling your passions? Um, so th that's a lot of it. And I'm, I'm so ADHD that by the reason that I listed so many clubs is I'll, I'll do it for a semester and then I'm bored with it. So I'll change it to another club. And, and every time I mention a club, my secretary goes, no, not another club. <laughs> you can't do another club, but I love it. And so I, I don't see it as a distraction from my work. I see it as an important part of my work and I enjoy it. And um, I, I didn't mention another thing that I've kind of moved into that, that I've really enjoyed is I have a fellowship with the U.S. Department of Education called School Ambassador Fellowship, where they fly us out to Washington, D.C. four times a year. And we work on projects with the U.S. Department of Education and, and the people there. And um, I, I know a lot of educators have a certain view about the, the Department of Education and the, the person at the top. But the people that I've met at the Department of Education are absolutely amazing educators. Um, the, the number two person at the Department of Education, Frank Brogan, I, I think you could ask 5,000 educators, have you ever heard the name Frank Brogan? And you would get 5,000 no's. But he's been an elementary, middle, high school teacher, an assistant principal, a principal, a, a coordinator, a director, a superintendent, a lieutenant governor, the dean of a university, and the president of the entire Florida State University system. You can't have a better resume than he has, and it's given me the opportunity to connect with people like him, and it's, it's been an incredible opportunity, and um, applications are closed um, for this year. Sunday, I'm flying out there to interview the, the next group of fellows, but I would highly encourage anybody who might be interested in, in expanding their horizons to apply for it um, next year. Uh, you, you, have a, you work on a capstone project throughout, and there, there are full-time fellows who move to Washington, D.C., and part-time fellows who continue their job and do the work outside, and it's really been an amazing experience. And my capstone project is something I'm very passionate about, and the next project that I'm moving into, there's some very powerful research how important curiosity is in the education of children. They call it the fifth drive. Curiosity drives learning as strongly as hunger drives eating. And igniting a student's curiosity, the research has shown, can last for 15 years. Um, when, a, when an infant 
or toddler points at something, that's them expressing curiosity. And psychologists have shown that if parents just give them whatever they're pointing at, their curiosity dies. If parents, um, they, they see it as a, or if, if parents ignore it, curiosity dies. If they give them what they're pointing at, they see it as a tool to get things. But if parents say, this is a phone, phones have apps, you could turn the phone on. This phone is black. Um, this is an S on the back of my phone. And they, they talk about it, it ignites their curiosity. And 15 years later, they're still doing better in school than their low curiosity peers. It can last that long. And I'm working on a, a blog post right now showing how there's a, a great article, I'll send you a link to it, where a researcher did a study showing, every, everybody has seen the data showing that schools in high poverty neighborhoods are generally more low performing than those in affluent schools. And everybody has their ideas why, but as we've already talked about, guesses why don't satisfy me. I need to know what the research says is the explanation. So this article was from a researcher who went out to all of these schools and studied that. And she found that it's not the quality of the teachers, it's the strategies that the teachers use. And the example that she gave when a, a highly high poverty school is teaching math, they teach an algorithm and they do a worksheet, they do an algorithm and they do a worksheet, they do an algorithm. Um, a middle class school, they will teach an algorithm, do some word problems about an algorithm, maybe collaborate around a little project and then move on to the next. And at the affluent school, the teachers are inviting students to discover the algorithm on their own. And that's, that's a curiosity igniting activity where learning an algorithm and doing a worksheet is not. So that difference is broadening the achievement gap long-term because the students at these affluent schools are getting their curiosity ignited and the students at the low performing schools are not. So they're already coming in with more trauma and, and things going on in their lives. And now we're adding to that by not giving them these curiosity inducing activities. And it's very powerful and it motivated me to, I've read thousands of pages of research on, on curiosity and its effect on learning. And I've narrowed it down to about 15 simple things that teachers can change to make their classroom more curiosity igniting. And so I've started blogging about it as part of my capstone project. I have four or five um, blog posts already. I'm working on um, the blog post about curiosity and equity and the achievement gap. And I'll send you a link to that as well. That's awesome. And, and, yeah, you shared, you shared one with me that is actually going to be an audio blog that is being put out on this, uh, this podcast mm -hmm. this summer. So that's, that's super exciting. And I can't wait for other people to hear that as well. So they don't just have to hear the opinions of, 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 of you or me, they can actually um, start to dive into the research and understand it in a, in a powerful way. So that's cool. That's very cool. I'm hoping that we'll, we'll get out into a lot of hands and start to, we, we've been taught for so many years that kids need to come into the classroom and see the same steps and sit in the same seat in the same rows. And Harry Wong, I think he, he just, he meant well, but destroyed education. 
because everything that Harry Wong says is curiosity crushing. If kids walk into a room and the desks are all outside and the teacher says, we're going to do an activity today and I want you to all go stand in the corner and pick one of this corner, that corner. Kids are like, whoa, what is this? And the research has also showed, like a lot of math teachers say, well, how do I make kids curious about math? But this research says you don't have to. If you make them curious about anything, their brain is open to receiving math better. So if they walk in and they're beanbag chairs instead of chairs one day, they're going to go, wow, my curiosity is peaked. And now their curiosity is going to help them learn math better as well. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's awesome. My executive director back there. You want to meet him? Don't destroy I, his his style of leadership is amazing. He's a middle school boy in a very intelligent man's body, and the kids love him. And he runs down the hall with unicorn masks on one day, and he puts things up his nose and eats it, and and it 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 works. It well, it, it goes back to the old to the old mindset, like like you were saying. Um, it, it, leadership is not just for grownups. He's leading the kids as well, doing the same thing. You're not going to lead kids where you want them to go if you're wagging your finger and telling them the rules all the time or trying to rationalize and use logic. You got to get on their level and be one of them. That's it. People love him. He, we had an experience with a substitute teacher one time and we decided a substitute could not come back to our campus anymore. And they, they requested a meeting with him and he explained everything to them, explained why they can't come back to our campus anymore. And they left the meeting telling me what a great man I work for. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, he has the, the communication magic that I, I was not born with, and I've been, I've been trying to learn from him. I, I sit in sometimes when he's making difficult phone calls so I can learn from him. I, I often sit in on meetings with, um, with parents to, who have concerns, even though I, I don't have any connection with their concern. I just want to learn from him and his leadership style. That's cool. <laughs> that's, why, that's what it's all about. Um, leading learning growing it's it's communal you you learn it with other people for other people that's awesome yeah. so i gotta ask you so we've we've talked about an awful lot here today we've talked about your journey um we've talked about uh, the lessons that you've learned we've talked about the lessons you're still learning and your passions and um your history and your trajectory we, we've talked about it a lot but i'm going to ask you real quick and i i warned you that this moment was going to come but I'm going to ask for, I call it my mic drop moment, your opportunity to, to proverbially pick up the mic and drop it as you walk off the stage and leave us with something. What out of your entire life, out of all the experience and all the stuff that you've shared, what's the one thing that you want people to pick up on and to resonate on after the, the podcast is over? I, I really think that the two things that have driven me throughout my, my leadership is, is the quote, don't let people who say it can't be done stop you from doing it. Um, I think the things that we're doing at this school that we did at my previous county office, people would say that stuff can't be done. Um, a population like that can't be as successful as they are. And we just moved on ahead doing it. And that, that drives me. And the, the book that has driven me it'll be ironic in a moment, the book that has driven me the most is Daniel Pink's Drive. Hmm. The idea that autonomy, mastery, and purpose are what motivate people. We designed our high school around that, both for teachers and for students. We designed a class called STEM Studio, where students 
get to choose a project that they're passionate about has an impact on the world and they get a year to work on it in our, our maker space, um, in our arts and crafts, wh whatever is they're passionate about, we give them a year to work on that project. And some of the things that came out of that class were absolutely amazing. It's one of the things that, that launched our student who's on his way to MIT. He loved that class and did, it, it launched his, his YouTube career. And so autonomy, mastery, and purpose, I think works for adults and it works for children. And we've, we've designed a school around those principles and now I'm trying to design my life around it. Oh, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Well said. Very cool. Mike, I, I appreciate you giving up your time um, doing this. People that don't know, we're recording this on a Friday afternoon. Um, well, it's a Friday evening here, Friday afternoon, right after school. Yes. Got let out there, man. So I know you're, you're tired. I know you want to go see some, some robots play next door. You want to go home and see your family. So I appreciate you taking time to do this, sharing your message, sharing your wisdom and truth with so many others, especially me. I, I appreciate you. Thank you. Absolutely. No problem. Did you enjoy this episode? I hope so. If you did, feel free to keep listening by subscribing right now to the Lasting Learning Podcast and get new episodes as soon as they're released. Interested in knowing more about me, Dave Schmidow? Well, feel free to find out what makes me tick by reading one of my books, Bold Humility, or it's like riding a bike. Feel free to check them both out on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or directly on my website, schmitto.net. That's S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-U.net.